Hey everyone. We at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past, present and emerging. We would also like to pay our respects to the local Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Science, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your Familiar Strange today, Simon Theobald, together with my fellow Familiar Strangers, Carolyn West. Hello. Carolyn West is doing a graduate diploma at the University of Melbourne majoring in anthropology. She is also the newest member of the Strange team. I'm also here with regular Alexander DeLoyer. Yeah, I am pretty regular. Hello. And our guest today is Anthea Snowsell. Hello. Anthea is doing an object-oriented ethnography of tomatoes in Myanmar. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chat group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight into today's episode. So, Caroline, what are you thinking about this week? So, this week I watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which got me thinking all about algorithms and the echo chambers they create in our curated social lives online and inevitably offline. So I'm curious about whether you think that this has always been an issue within social circles prior to the internet, or is the globalised scale and mass public nature of the internet contributing more to the issue of polarisation and filter bubbles that we're currently seeing? I mean, I always subscribe to the belief that there's nothing new under the sun. I reckon there's always a historical antecedent for anything. It's often just a question of like scale and type. So I reckon there's always been like polarisation and people just kind of being in little bubbles. But I suspect that in the past, this was really geographic where, you know, you might be in your little town and probably there are going to be a diversity of opinions in the town, of course, but you're probably going to have fairly similar experiences and therefore your thoughts structures of feeling etc are going to be shaped in kind of similar ways whereas now because we can interact really along lines that are much less geographic i reckon these patterns are being drawn in different ways yeah i think that i mean as an anthropologist when we look at these kind of social phenomena that it's good to consider how these sort of like new developments in society or transformations are a continuation of pre-existing social forms like similar to what Alex said I don't think there's necessarily anything that emerges from nothing there's always a sort of like historical trajectory to these kinds of things but I definitely think that the way the internet has connected people in ways that transcend geographic limitations has probably made this more of a noticeable phenomena and I mean I would say that like it's pretty instinctive amongst people to surround themselves with people who think like themselves and so I don't think that that's necessarily a new thing but definitely the ways in which that unfolds online is really interesting. I think Carolyn's probably right I think there's been a kind of fundamental shift though in the way that people relate to each other in an intellectual sense that I think was different in certainly pre-modern times. I mean, obviously, people had much smaller, socially kind of accomplished worlds. As in, they weren't traveling enormous distances. Mostly, they were usually fairly geographically fixed in particular areas, and that would have carried with it a certain kind of social horizon. 
But I think at the same time, in some ways, I mean, it's not something I almost wrote my honest thesis about. I, I was looking particularly at the way in which ultra-Orthodox Jews of a particular flavor looked at trying to recreate the boundedness of their own community on an online space. So how, rather than the internet as this kind of democratic, freewheeling space in which people are able to have access to a diversity of opinions, they actually manipulated it fairly successfully into a space in which they were just reinforcing their own beliefs through cult the cultivation of particular kind of technologies and the cultivation of particular kind of spaces and so on. And I think that is something that has become more pronounced in the last 20 odd years, I would say, for certain. And there's, there's been a kind of calcification of discourse. Also, like, whose voice okay. is the loudest? So, like, here in Melbourne, we have, like, uh, lots of hashtags on Twitter trending every day about sort of like the press conferences around uh, coronavirus and there's like hashtag I stand with Dan or hashtag dictator Dan depending on which side of like the political spectrum you sit and it's really interesting even just uh, doing a quick search into Twitter for say a keyword such as Dan Andrews it's really negative like it's so I'm surprised at how negative this space is and so as someone who's going on and like I don't particularly with that I think he's doing a great job like seeing that is really and it's just tweet after tweet after tweet just consistently bombarding the space with like essentially like anti dan andrew spam and it becomes overwhelming and almost like disorientating in a sense as to like like how you almost perceive your reality because if you have such a polarized opinion it's like how do i measure what i feel against what all of these other people feel in this social sphere that i'm like a part of as well. Well, it's funny that we've sort of talked a bit about uh, people and who we are, because I've been thinking about some research I've been doing for what is hopefully going to be an upcoming chapter of the thesis, and that's about the personhood of corporations. Corporations are legally people. Now, that can be overstated, so some people get very alarmist about it. My question to you guys is... What do you think it means? Because at the end of the day, a corporation is a group of people. But what does it mean to have a group of people recognised legally as a person? I wonder what the purpose of perhaps labelling an entity as a corporation is. Like, is it just convenient and like a reflection of the capitalist society that we live in? In the sense that like the way that society has been set up is to somewhat benefit the individual person so therefore thinking of a business as an individual makes it easier to sort of like navigate the systems that we've put in place oh i really like that hypothesis if you asked uh for really standard answers it's a limited liability thing so that if the corporation say goes into debt or is sued the individuals behind the corporation have less liability and it's the corporation itself that owes the money. But personhood is more than just what's legally recognised. It's also how we act. And I think that's an interesting point about... Because we talk about often corporations as like... Almost as if they were people. And then by individualising them, does it help them fit into a supposedly individualistic capitalist system? That's a crazy idea, but kind of cool. Yeah, I just... I think it like... Uh, I think like... My the idea kind of like stemmed from perhaps like, you know, we talk about things as like uh, sole like business owners, sort of like personal branding and all of these things. So even like I, I have my own like business. So it's like 
I am like myself as an individual person, but then I'm also like my professional like business self as well. And they're related, but they're also really different. But I have to think of myself as kind of like two separate entities in order to navigate uh, both worlds successfully. And I think the sort of default position we tend to take when thinking about corporations and um, what they are is they're sort of this faceless, almost non-human entity. But of course, they are assembled by humans, of humans. And thinking about, okay, what are the implications of that? I'm just sort of reflecting on my fieldwork experience. And there was a particular incident that caused a bit of friction in my research community to do with maybe a misunderstanding around this kind of relationship. So there was a business, not a corporation, but a business, I guess, that had operations in the area where I was doing my fieldwork and they were marketing themselves as a fair trade business in a way that was sort of problematic and disingenuous. And I took issue with it on behalf of sort of the people I knew in the community who might not agree with with how the business was representing itself and how I felt in relation to the business and just did the standard thing of like calling them out on social media in the way that you would sort of interact with like a really non-personal entity like a corporation or a business. Like it's a kind of public space. There's nothing really personal about it. So I did that. But then it turned out that the individual behind the business was someone who had quite deep effective ties (laughs) to other people in the community I guess and so it kind of created a conflict because then people some other people in the community approached me and they were like you why didn't you just go directly to this lady and talk to her and I had no idea that it was this person sort of behind it so there was this like element of the individual that was being conflated with the business itself and um, by not in that particular context um, operating with them like a person like an individual that created um, a big rift a big conflict so I think it is definitely an interesting one to consider well I mean it's interesting we talk about this about about this as a potentially kind of capitalist thing I'm going to put out this out there the kind of dangerous world of human universals but I wonder if there is a human kind of propensity towards the Personification, I don't necessarily mean that in an individualistic sense, but in, a, in however you want to think about individual or individual, but the tendency to personify things. Because we often talk about, and we talk, talk particularly in pre-capitalist times, we talk about the kind of corporate entities, and I mean it in a much broader sense, as, as in groups of people, as having certain, not quite personalities, but as being associated with personages, for instance. I mean, like the Catholic Church, for instance, in Europe, was associated with the kind of personage of Christ and also the Pope and so on. Um, when nationalism came along, there was a long association between nations and individuals and there was something sort of quite literally personified in the kind of forms of particular figures and so on. So I, I don't know whether this is necessarily a product of capitalism so much as it has just roots in the way in which humans like to prefer to deal with other humans as recognizable forms as opposed to necessarily dealing with kind of conceptual abstract entities which i think is sometimes harder for us to get our heads around i i think we can be more empathetic uh with each other when or with something when we can relate to it through the human experience almost i also feel like people feel the same way about things like climate change or say the coronavirus there's no real person that we can necessarily blame for these things 
it's homogenous and convoluted and invisible. And so sometimes we see people try to like pinpoint these issues on someone because it's easier to kind of relate to, I think. Anthea, what are you thinking about this week? I'm thinking about the buy nothing movement. Recently, I moved into a new place and it needed to be furnished basically from no possessions to filling up an apartment. So I joined my local buy nothing group on Facebook and I've been thinking a lot about the gift economy that operates on it. And I I just want to ask what kind of socialities do we see being created through these online gift economies? Well, I think I'll take the obvious question. Can you tell us about this buy nothing movement or group or whatever? Yeah, sure. So for people who don't know, it's called the Buy Nothing Project. And I believe it was set up outside of Facebook, but it exists on Facebook. And basically, they are these what they call hyper-local gifting economies or communities, I guess, based on your sort of suburb area, your like really local immediate area. And it basically functions where people can gift whatever. So they can just post on the group, hi, everyone, I'm gifting this desk, for example. And then people can express their interest on items to be gifted. People can also put requests in the group for a need. And if people in the group can fulfill it or want to, then they can do that. So it's supposed to, yeah, encourage the spirit of gifting and in doing so create local community. It's, I think it's a, it's a really interesting issue you raise because I, I moved obviously recently and I had to get rid of all my stuff and we're now in the process of moving into a new flat and having to buy all the stuff potentially again. But I, one thing I noticed in getting rid of my stuff was that quite often the things which we tried to give away for free, some of them went like hotcakes, like we, we got rid of a, a, blend, a blender yeah. and and people were falling over themselves to try and get this planned up for free. But other things we would put for free and people would not want them. And then if you raise the price to $10, suddenly you would have interest. Did you notice any pattern among what went for free and what went for 10 bucks? No, I think I don't think anyone, I think today trying to sell something, trying to, trying to sell or to gift something intimate is quite difficult. As in trying to get rid of things like a mattress can be difficult because I think people associate it with some kind of intimacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. As a mild germaphobe, part of what you're saying horrifies me, but it's spot on. And I think you can take this to other realms. I remember backpacking around Europe back in the day and quite a few people I knew did the whole couch surfing thing and I never did it. I was always tempted, but back in Australia, I was living with my parents um, and knew I couldn't offer a space. And even though it explicitly says, like, you do not need to offer a space, it's just, if you can, please do. It's not, like, an absolute obligation. I, it just felt too wrong to, like, take advantage of somebody's couch and the system more broadly, knowing I wouldn't be able to re- reciprocate for, at that stage, who knew how long. Yeah, I've, I feel like, um, mm. piggybacking on both of those comments, uh, it's interesting, like, at what point does something become an appropriate gift? Like, speaking of mattresses, it's like, yeah, I'm totally with you guys. I would never particularly look at buying a used mattress, especially looking at the four mattresses my housemates uh, got rid of in hard rubbish yesterday. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we talk about sort of like mattresses being this really intimate, uh, I guess, object and space. 
but at the same and, and we're not willing to buy a say a second hand one but at the same time we're willing to stay in hotels and hostels and places where we use those items we just don't own them yeah and because I, I feel like one thing that's interesting about the social space that's created by the buy nothing groups is that there's a sort of implicit understanding that in it being a gift it's worthy of being gifted and therefore if someone's offering a mattress the instinct is to want to take them at their word because of the space that it's being circulated in and like what it's doing in being a gift i guess that's all we have time for today i want to thank uh no Simon. oh i have to talk uh what do i think about this week this week <laughs> i have been thinking about what well, for longer than this week actually for some time i've been thinking about colonial relations and how those relations are situated in place in very specific geographic confines and how those relationships change dependent on where one is. I have moved to Germany and I wondered what that would mean for the very kind of viscerally felt relationship that I had with Australia's colonial history. Does our relationship with colonialism, and we're all white Australians here, does our relationship colonial, with colonialism change depending on place or is it an enduring relationship that is kind of de- independent of, of time and space? I don't think that our individual relationships to colonialism should be thought of narrowly in terms of a place-based relationship. So I think it's more of an embodied relationship than it is like a place-based one. Even if you're outside of Australia, you're still somebody who has benefited directly from the experiences of colonialism and the event of colonialism. One thing that I found interesting through my travels and living overseas as well, yeah, I don't think we can ever really escape the legacy of colonialism, but I think there are sort of like two opportunities we're presented with when we do travel overseas, and that is the opportunity to understand uh, specifically colonisation within Australia through different contexts. So just, for example, like going to New Zealand and seeing how communities there uh, differ uh, and how conversations differ compared to what we experience here in Australia. So one example is like uh, I went to the art gallery of Wellington and Auckland and both of them had the Maori language description of the painting alongside the English version and sort of like seeing these spaces and how people interacted with them uh, and how they differed compared to what I've experienced in Australia. But also I think it's an opportunity for us to, I guess, kind of I don't know if educate's the right word, but to at least like talk about it with other people who might not be as aware of like the specific colonialism in Australia, because I think we're obviously all taught it in school, but in terms of what other people I've interacted with actually know about Australia's history, it's very, very limited. And the more that I think we can talk about this legacy of colonialism in Australia with others, I think is better, especially for people who are planning on coming here as well. To be fair, it can go the other way, though. I remember chatting to a guy in Ecuador, admittedly sort of like educated up middle class, but working in a smaller town, who was chatting and just talking about stuff. And he goes, yeah, like, in Australia, like, you've always treated your indigenous people, like, really terribly, haven't you? Like, it's just really bad over there. And I was like, holy heck. And like, South America has its own awful history with its indigenous peoples. But also there's that moment, word can get around at times. To be in random places in South America and still have this reputation it was a little bit shocking to me. But to get back to the topic of does it stay, does it change? For myself, I suspect it's a bit of both. I've always liked somebody, I can't remember who, said your country is a bit like your family. Even if you disown it, it's still like greatly affected you. Times when I've lived overseas, I 
think my relationship to colonialism has certainly changed. When I go to, say, South America, I'm, you know, still descendant of white European colonialists, but but it's a different personal history I trace to that particular experience of colonialism, particularly because colonialism there was also played out in a very different way. I think it's inescapable, but it does sort of change. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, I think um, we see this also in Australia with state by state as well. So I grew up in some really Northern parts of Western Australia and in school, I had a lot of education around uh, indigenous practices specific to the communities in which I was living. And then uh, my family decided to move back to Victoria and none of my friends had that education or awareness at all. All that we were sort of taught in school here was more around history from a white perspective and not anything that was specifically indigenous orientated. So I think we see it across uh, parts of Australia as well. Yeah, just earlier in in response to this sort of point about people moving and in their movement and travel sort of like losing sight of their own colonial histories and just sort of reflecting on what kind of indictment that is when the fact that whiteness is a privilege of colonialism writ large like whether it's your like individual place-based experience of a particular colonial history but the kind of blindness that there is to that is something to question I wonder if that is part of what you're questioning Simon there's an an academic thinker who I really like because she really challenges a lot of what I preconceived notions that I have she's called Ruby Hamad and I've mentioned her a couple of times on the show but we're talking about the kind of the whiteness uh, and the colonialism of Israel. Non-white people who live as marginalized minorities within a broader white Israeli state, do they carry that notion of white colonialism with them into the occupied territories in Palestine? So there are, for instance, there's this population maybe of about 200,000 people of Ethiopian descent who live in Israel who are understood as being Ethiopian Jews. Do they carry with them Israel's white Ashkenazi colonialism into the occupied territories? And her answer was yes, that there's a, that regardless of whether that whiteness is not so much a question of actual skin color, but it's all about the kind of hierarchies of value that we place on particular lives versus other people's lives. And that those relationships continue to make any structure or any group of people who are beneficiaries of white, in inverted commas, colonialism, they become cogs in the machine, effectively reproducing the system of colonialism. Racism is really um, complicated. That's my that's my incredible anthropological insight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, Leave that one back in. Leave that no, is I the think, one I think, question. Like... I think sometimes people really would like to simplify racism into a clear-cut kind of dichotomizing analysis, but it's actually mm-hmm. it has a whole lot of unusual angles that it goes down. And that's my that's my incredible insight. Now, thanks all for being here. That's all we have time for today. I would like to thank thank Anthea Snowsill. Thanks, Alexander Deloyer. Thanks, Simon. Uh, and Carolyn West. Thanks for having me. Oh, and me. Sorry, I forgot myself. Simon, your host. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Dan Academy and Matthew Fulm. You can subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast and find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Strange. Not Strange for Medias, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropologists' role in the world, from If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the host of this program, email us at submissions at strange.com, tweet at TFS tweets, 
or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Bill Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Uh, thanks for listening. Until t- next time, keep talking strange.